Morning, Myrtle Grove. Morning. I was sitting with our session. Those are our elders, or if it's easier to understand. I'm going to drag this all the way to the middle here. But if it's easier to understand, those are kind of like our uh, board of directors around here. It was about six months ago, and they were, uh, one of them who I respect deeply was up in front of the entire group of elders, and he drew something on the board that, and he said, this is what makes Myrtle Grove so beautiful and yet so complex. And so he drew this sort of spectrum on the board, and he said, we're reformed, and we're all reformed in our faith, we're Presbyterian, and yet we're also charismatic, and we're traditional, and yet we're contemporary. And I was sort of thinking this week as I was preparing, and I was just celebrating and thanking the Lord that we are all here together, one in Christ, one service. I could look around the room and go, we have the Wilbur and Judy Davises back here who are a little on the traditional side, right? Let's hear it. And I could look down here to some of our younger crew who's probably a little more on the contemporary side, or even the wild Ben Royal who's a little on the charismatic side. But what is so beautiful, what is so worthwhile is that we as a family exist, whether we're traditional, whether we're contemporary, whether reformed, whether we're charismatic, we are one in Christ. And you know, the truth is, the reason Abby and I love this house so much is we are all of those things. Can we give the Lord a hand for who we are? In the essentials around here, we have unity. In the non-essentials, we have liberty. It's a good thing. The Thanksgiving project happened. I don't want to recap that, but I do want to point out to you that has been happening for 31 years. You believe that? Isn't that cool? That's older than some of you guys. Uh, Jerry Cannon, are you in the house? There he is. Let's give Jerry a hand. He directed the Thanksgiving project. I know, I see you. Jerry's back there and he's pointing heavenward and that's true, Jerry, but it takes our surrender and our willing participation with Jesus and uh, we're grateful to you. Uh, Last thing before I jump in, um, if you haven't been on a field trip around our campus in a while, you need to do that. There's a few things that have happened. We have a new kitchen back here. Thanks to Nathan Worrell and Wilbur Davis and the BFPC. So if you haven't seen that, you need to go look at it. Yep. If you haven't been back to our Sprouts trailer, that's our pre-K ministry. April Hubbard leads that. She won't be in here with us today because she's back leading it. I see your daughter Phoebe back there. But she has done a magnificent job renovating and just painting. It's a beautiful space. As you, as you pass by the kitchen, you need to go on back and check that out. Our next-gen room, that's where our, uh, element, or our middle school, high school, and college, and elementary meet, all at different times, but you need to check that out. That is thanks to Matt George. I don't know if he's here. Not here. Okay. Um, and then lastly, the, the gym. If you haven't been back to the gym in a while, go check that out. Stacy Miller and the Myrtle Grove Christian School just refinished the floor back there. You've got to walk out back and see the soccer fields. There's a lot of neat stuff happening around here. So can we give the Lord just a hand for all that he's doing?
And if you haven't done so, take a field trip around the building sometime and just remind yourself that there is a God, that he is at work, that he is rekindling his purpose and his vision for this church in this city at this time. All right, turn with me to John 1. Uh, we're in a collection of talks all centered around John. I, uh, I was out of town last weekend on a camping trip with my son Stephen, and I'm told that Pastor Steve must have just hit a grand slam. In fact, it was so good, I think Denny Anderson brought a block of cheese in, and uh, maybe for he and Pastor Steve. All right. Come on, Denny, put yours on too. The pastor's doing it. Uh, Pastor Jim is requesting that you both put your cheese on your head and rise to your feet. All right. (laughs) We are followers, not fans. Well done. Well done. You know what? If you're uh, coming off like we are Thanksgiving, then, you know, family is this messy, beautiful, wonderful thing. And that's what we are around here. We're a family church that is all about influencing and reaching Wilmington with the love of Christ. So we're in John chapter one. I'm going to start reading in verse 35 and I am going to go through 42. So, uh, There's a Bible in the pew in front of you if you don't have one. Let's read together the Word of God. John chapter 1, verse 35. The next day, John, that's John the Baptist, was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, or behold, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. And the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which means Peter. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, will you open our eyes this morning? Would you enliven our heart? Would you allow us to gaze into the mirror of this scripture? And would you transform us into the likeness of Christ? Lord, would you live your life in us and through us? We surrender to you, Lord Jesus. We open the eyes of our heart to see. Mold us today. In your name we pray. Amen. In 1893, Dwight Moody was in Wilmington. Isn't that cool? He was right down the road at First Presbyterian Church on 3rd Street. And he was preaching a fiery revival message of reaching out beyond the church into the surrounding countryside. He was bringing a message of revival, sending missionaries abroad. He was bringing a message of there's people who can't reach your central church here because they mostly had what? Buggies and horses. They had Model Ts. They had, I think, some electric trolleys thereabouts. 
But he was preaching, we need to be about going out. We need to be about touching people around us. And First Presbyterian Church was fired up under the power of God in a D.L. Moody revival. There is a God in heaven. (laughs) Amen. About two years later, 1895, First Presbyterian began sending missionaries internationally as, as well as all around parts of Wilmington. Fascinating to me. Almost all of the Presbyterian churches in Wilmington right now were started as a result of that fiery revival that D.L. Moody brought in 1893. And it began as all these little Sunday school outposts that were all over our little city, and they're now full-on Presbyterian churches. The Myrtle Grove Sunday School Outpost was founded in 1919. Isn't that crazy? by a deacon from First Press. In 1926, that little white building, I, can't, I can almost see it from here, but not quite, a little white building right down the road was first built and Myrtle Grove started coming together as a church. Fascinating. By 1970, revival fires were burning in the hearts of young people across America. And there was actually a guy here by the name of Nicky Cruz. He's the founder of Teen Challenge. And he came to Wilmington and he had an immensely impactful crusade here that again got people sort of reoriented around the Holy Spirit, reoriented around revival, and people began to gather and pray. That crusade combined with a move of God that was going on across the nation called the Full Gospel Businessmen Movement and the Jesus movement was sweeping across America, turning people back to Jesus. We need one of those again, don't we? We need one of those again. But when, that, when Nikki was here, there was two prayer groups that were spawned. There was probably many, but I, I know of two in my little story here. And one of those prayer groups was meeting at First Presbyterian Church, and the other prayer group was meeting in the home of Ed and Ann Pitts. Isn't that cool? And they were praying for Wilmington. And they were praying for Myrtle Grove. That first Presbyterian group also included Bill and Virginia Hill. And between 1972 and 1976, the other people that were included in that prayer group that met in the home of the pits was Luke and Misha Sampson before Luke went to med school. Patsy and Larry Lennon, Mary Jo Hunley, John and Carolyn Hicks, and of course, Bill and Virginia Hill. Pretty cool. They're meeting to pray specifically at this point for revival to come to the city of Wilmington. And they had met a young pastor at the time, younger, I guess, by the name of Horace Hilton. And they were praying specifically that God would bring Horace to Wilmington. Now, Horace had had his own experience with the Lord and with the Holy Spirit, and he was developing a bit of a reputation as a young, wild man, I think, a little charismatic, and Presbytery, honestly, I'm not sure, knew entirely what to do with him. In 1972, Ed and Ann Pitts were at a full gospel businessmen meeting in Charlotte, North Carolina, and Ann told me just the other day that they saw Horace sort of hiding in the back of the room because it was in his hometown where he was pastoring at Sugar, but it's, it's, it's written Sugar. How do you say it, Jim? 
Sugar. Sugar? Oh, okay. It's Presbyterian Church in Charlotte. But <clears throat> Anne told me that Horace was literally almost hiding in the back because he didn't want the people of his church to know that he was at this wild, charismatic gathering. And Ed and Anne started praying all the more fervently that God would bring him here. Fascinating to me because by 1973, Ed and Ann, they invited Pastor Horace to speak at and, and lead the First Presbyterian prayer meeting, but First Press would not let them use their building because they were a little wild. So they met in homes. Horace came and spoke at four consecutive prayer meetings that were gathering in houses. So those two little prayer groups prayed all the more fervently that Horace would come to Wilmington there were three different Presbyterian churches here that called, called Horace as their senior pastor to be their senior pastor, and Presbytery turned him down. I think Myrtle Grove was the third that called him. And Presbytery finally said yes because it was this little podunk white church right out here in the middle of nowhere and no nothing, Myrtle Grove, Monkey Junction, and he certainly couldn't do any damage out there, Right? Ann, are you here today? There you go. <laughs> Miss Virginia, are you here today? Right there, Miss Virginia. You got wave at us. We want to say thank you that you all prayed and influenced our house here. I have no doubt that your husbands, Ed and Bill, are in heaven celebrating their legacy here. And they're still praying for us, says Ann. Church, the best is yet to come. Say it with me. The best is yet to come. Say it again. The best is yet to come. Jesus, let the best days, the most impactful days, let the fires of revival burn the brightest in the days ahead. Lord, send us. Amen. Church, your influence is more significant than you think more powerful than you think, and more vital to the destiny of those around you than you think. Take this little prayer group that is praying Horace Hilton into our city. Take this little, these two little prayer groups that are praying for this man to come, praying for a move of God to come into our little city and shift Wilmington. Just like that little group from First Press elevated the purposes of God in bringing Horace, so Andrew elevates Peter in this passage we just read, pointing Peter to his destiny, calling Peter higher, calling him into that eternal place that he was meant to be. He was created to walk in. If you're making notes, write this one down. You will either elevate people toward their God-given destiny or you will become an impediment from people being all that God has created them to be. You can't do both. You will either be a person that elevates people toward their God-given destiny or you will become an impediment keeping people from becoming all that God has created them to be, but you can't do both. You'll either be full of Jesus, I've been crucified with Christ, I no longer live, but who? Christ lives in me. Pastor Steve's been bringing that message. Or you'll be full of your flesh, but you cannot do both. 
What is in you will spill out. What is in us will come out. If we're full of the life of Christ, it will come out in every conversation, every interaction, everything that we do on the people around us. And some of you are sitting there today and you might go, Michael, this seems so difficult. It almost sounds like works. It almost sounds like performance. And I'm going, no, no, no. This is impossible. This is impossible apart from your total and complete surrender to the finished work of Christ Jesus. And in that impossibility, in that surrender, comes rest. Because it's been paid for. And all power on heaven and earth, all power on heaven and earth has been made available to you and I to live our lives as we're in Christ if we will wholly surrender ourselves to him. Church, your influence is more significant than you know on the people around you. You're either going to elevate people toward their God-given destiny or you will become an impediment to keep people from becoming all that God has created them to be. You cannot do both. Let's dig into this scripture. I want to unpack exactly how Andrew elevates Peter towards his God-given destiny in Christ, just like our two prayer groups did with Horace and with Myrtle Grove. So our story here kicks off with John the Baptist, and I want to remind you that John the Baptist is hanging out, and he's looking just like Elijah, just like Elijah. He's wearing the same clothes. He's got a similar belt on. His hair looks the same. His beard looks the same. He is coming in the form and the fashion of an Old Testament prophet, which is what the people of the day would have recognized. And John has his own disciples. There are people who are just rolling around. That's a big fancy word. But what that means is they're just hanging out with him. They're doing life with him. They get up in the morning and they roll over and they go down to the lake and they splash some water on their face and they swish some water around their mouth because I guess they didn't have a toothbrush. And maybe they catch a fish and they put it over the fire and then they spend the day baptizing people and then they stop and have a delicately prepared meal of pan-fried locusts and a honey something, I don't know. But they're doing life together. And what happens as you read this passage in John, and if you look at the other Gospels, which I'm not going to turn to this morning, but what happens is you see that John the Baptist keeps pointing to Jesus. He keeps looking at his disciples saying, whoa, check this guy Jesus out, here he comes. He's going to take away the sin of the world. There's Jesus He's the Lamb of God. Behold, check him out. Watch his life. And it's amazing to me because everything that comes out of John the Baptist's mouth is indicative of John's decrease and Jesus's increase. Everything that rolls out of John's mouth is about him decreasing and Christ Jesus increasing. So they're in the middle of really a revival happening. People, it says all the people from Jerusalem and Judea and they're all around in countrysides are coming down to the river and they're getting baptized by John. And I have no doubt that behind the scenes when they're eating breakfast or when they're hanging out, when they're cooking dinner, that John's talking to his disciples and he's going, hey, this guy, Jesus, watch this guy. Watch this guy, get ready. He's coming. He's bringing true fire of revival. I'm just baptizing with water. This guy's going to baptize in the Holy Spirit. This guy is bringing 
a full conclusion of the Old Testament prophets. So they're hanging out that day and John looks and Jesus is passing by and he says it again. Hey guys, look, there goes Jesus, the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God that will take away the sin of the world. And there's two disciples who are hanging out with John at that particular moment and the two disciples begin to follow Jesus. I want to point something out here. I think before those disciples made the choice to follow Jesus physically that day, how many times might John have said, check it out, here comes Jesus. He's the Lamb of God. How many conversations might there have been around the fire? How many conversations have there, might there have been when they're baptizing people? It takes, for some reason, it takes us as humans time to hear the gospel, to be pointed to Jesus. I want to encourage us in that moment that that's how you share the gospel with your neighbors. That's how you talk to the people that live next to you. That's how you speak to the person in the cubicle across from you. You just keep pointing them to Jesus. Just keep pointing them to Jesus. If you have an opportunity to pray with them, you pray with them. If you have an opportunity to tell them a story, tell them a story. But you just keep pointing them to Jesus. So you have John here, and he's been pointing these guys towards Jesus. And then Jesus finally walks by on this particular day. And John goes, whoa, here comes the Lamb of God again. He's going to take away the sin of the world. And these two guys trot after Jesus. They start walking after him. And it's fascinating for me, to me because all of Israel is waiting for this Messiah. The entire country is waiting and watching for the Messiah to come. And you got this guy from Nazareth who's a carpenter with rough-hewn hands from an ill-reputed city like Nazareth. Nazareth, and yet these guys see King Jesus. So they go up behind him, and I imagine as they sneak up behind him, they're actually timid. They might even be frightened, but they come up behind Jesus. And I want you to get this, just this imagery. Jesus is standing, and he's looking one way. And these guys come up behind Jesus, and Jesus has no idea they're there. All of heaven is waiting and watching for the heart that shifts and turns towards him. All of heaven. Heaven cannot resist when a heart humbles itself, yields itself, and turns towards Christ Jesus. Jesus that day didn't need to see him with his eyes. He was so in tune with the greater kingdom of God that he knew that there were two people standing behind him who in their hearts had humbled themselves and were turning towards him. And the scripture says Jesus turned. And I just imagine Jesus' eyes being full of passion and intensity and fire and zeal and also kindness and grace and gentleness. I love Jesus. I love this Jesus. And he turns around at these two guys and he's like, what is it you want? That's our Jesus, never manipulating Never pushing, never cajoling, never hurrying, never being rough, always gentle. But those fiery eyes turn around. He goes, what is it you want? 
Always looking for that surrendered heart. Always looking for those of us who are going to fully say yes to the purposes and the plans of him in our lives in this moment, on this day, in this year. And I love the way these two guys respond. They respond two different ways to him. The first thing that they say is they call him rabbi. Very countercultural here at the moment for them to refer to Jesus as rabbi. This dude's a, a rough-hewn carpenter, probably with slightly dirty clothes from a no-name no place like Nazareth, and they call him rabbi. They call him teacher. They're calling him master. They're elevating him to a position that, that the greatest in their culture are elevated. They know. They know when those fiery eyes full of kindness and passion turn around that they've seen the Messiah, they know that they have seen Jesus and all of heaven stops and goes out to that one who turns. But these guys call Jesus rabbi. It's a term of utmost respect. And the next thing they ask Jesus, I love this too, they go, Jesus, where are you staying? Not what are you teaching? Not will you tell us how to live our lives? Not, what are the religious rules I need to follow? It's Jesus, where are you staying? We want to come be with you. We want to walk with you. We want to live life with you. We serve this relational God who is so fiercely relational, and yet somehow we end up, I do it all the time, but we, we skip over all that beauty and relationship and make it about rules and performance and regulations, and all of a sudden we're like little monkeys going, jumping through hoops. But this beautiful, beautiful relational Jesus. And these two disciples on that day, I think, sense that, and they go, where are you staying and Jesus turns to him and he says, come and you'll see. And Jesus invites them to journey with him, to hang out with him, to walk with him, to spend the day with him, doing life, loving, interacting, building relationship, eating, sitting around the fire, doing life with one another. What a Jesus. What a Jesus. So the scripture says they hang out with Jesus. It's now four in the afternoon. And then Andrew is so full of passion. His heart burns within him and he runs to seek out his brother Peter. Brothers are special. And he is so full of passion for his brother. I, I envision Andrew that day and I think about him. He's probably standing there and he's going, Peter is not called just to be a fisherman. I have met the Messiah. I have seen the Messiah. I have seen him. And we are called to something more. We are called to a greater destiny. We are called to participate with this man, Jesus, in bringing the very kingdom of God into our city and our country. And so he runs to where Peter is fishing, runs to get him. And he brings Simon back. Peter's name was really Simon at that moment. And he brings Simon to Jesus. And Jesus has never met Simon, has never seen Simon, doesn't know anything about Simon in the natural. And he looks right at him and he goes, Simon, son of John. Just revealing his majesty, revealing that again, this is King Jesus. 
And those kind, piercing eyes look into Peter's eyes. And for that minute, eternity meets earth. And this weird transaction happens between heaven embracing this future apostle. Heaven embracing this rough-hewn fisherman. And there's a heart transaction somewhere between Jesus and Peter. Jesus calls, Peter responds. And Jesus says, from now on, you will be called Cephas or Peter. And then I believe further on, there's this beautiful thing that happens between the two of them where Jesus is going, I'm going to disciple you. And on this rock, I will build my church. Peter went on to lead the New Testament church in Jerusalem. Peter went on to be a part of sending out Paul to evangelize the entire New Testament church. And Andrew was the one who influenced the destiny of Peter. Your influence is more significant than you think, more powerful than you think, and more vital to the destiny of those around you than you think. You will either elevate people toward their God-given destiny or you will become an impediment from people becoming all that God has created them to be. You cannot do both. I want to get practical here for a minute. We have been called, we have been commissioned by God to call people higher into their God-given destiny. Here's Andrew calling Peter higher. Here are prayer groups from the 1970s calling Wilmington higher. One of the things that Abby and I work hard to do in our marriage is to call each other higher and to call all those around us into their God-given destiny. We look at each other often and say, are we upgrading the situation? Are we making this situation better? How many of you know that it is so easy to make a situation worse? I feel like I spend more time making situations worse by my response. And no matter how bad a situation is, it can be so, so bad. Guess what I can do? I can make it worse by my response. I don't know how that works, but it does. We had a little thing happen last night that I'm not going to go into. Abby and I had a little discussion, and guess what I did? I made it worse. Oh, my goodness, I did. In those moments, we have a call, we have a commission, and we have the ability of Christ Jesus living his life in us and through us to make every situation better, to upgrade it, to call people around us higher. We have that ability, but it takes surrender. Crazy surrender. Jesus, it's about you. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Jesus who lives in me. No matter how bad a situation, we can always make it worse by our response. This works with, if you're a parent, this works with our spouses, this works with siblings, this works with coworkers. You can begin to just even think about this. But we are called also to influence non-believers toward Jesus. How many genuine smiles do you see in a day? Just think about it. Genuine. One that you really see Jesus shining in. A genuine smile impacts people. A kind word. I love your sweater. You got a haircut. There is power in that kindness. 
You want to know how to elevate a situation? You want to know how to call people higher? There is power. Kindness is a kingdom currency that, call, that cuts all walls, divisions, and misunderstandings. There is no law against kindness. I can be kind and genuine and conversational with nearly anyone, and the relational walls come crumbling down. I get religious, I get stuck up, I get arrogant. What happens? People clam up. Kindness. How do you call people higher? How do you call people into their God-given destiny? How do you carry Jesus in a practical way? Kindness. Kindness. Every word I say, I want to also apply this to a family. I want to apply this to us as parents. If you're a grandparent, you can apply it to that also. But every word I say to my kids is either pointing them to their God-given destiny or it's going to point them away from it. That's powerful. That's heavy. I've, I've been under that a few times. Like, oh my goodness, I'm going to wreck my kids. And Michael in his flesh, guess what I am going to do? Wreck my kids. Michael crucified with Christ and Christ is living in me. My kids are great. My kids are going to be great. Our kids are going to be wonderful. Nice kids follow social norms, but kind kids follow kingdom norms. We're raising kind kids. Now, what I'm not telling you here as parents or grandparents, I'm not telling you you've got to be a doormat in order to empower your kids or call them higher. This is really important. You don't have to be a doormat. One of the things that's happened at our house is we, um, I take the kids to school in the morning, and so we leave about 7.10. And Abby and I hit this little uh, bump at our house because Eve was spending so much time doing her hair, and Stephen would uh, spend time tinkering on one project or another. And, you know, I usually get up, and we have coffee going and breakfast, and then they need to rinse their dishes and throw them in the dishwasher and clean up their rooms, and then we're out the door by about 7.10. And they weren't doing those things. So I was getting frustrated, aggravated, grumpy, you fill in the blank. Abby was too. So Abby was spending time in the mornings after we left, you know, scurrying around and cleaning up things that the kids should have already done. I started going, Lord, what, how, how do we handle this? Abby and I started talking. Because a couple times, I just... I didn't yell, I didn't really raise my voice, but I just wasn't kind, I wasn't gentle, I wasn't full of the life and love and compassion of Christ Jesus. And so what we decided to do, Abby and I came up with a plan, and I said, hey guys, this is what's expected before you go. If you don't do it, it's okay, but we won't leave and go to school until you do it. Now my kids love school. They love school, both of them, and they want to be early to school. All right, they both, and I guess Gabby, they both love school. They want to be early. So I will get ready and I will just sit by the door. You ready to go? Uh-huh. Okay. Why are we leaving, Dad? It's time to go. Kitchen's still a mess. Oh, okay, so they can do their thing. We ready to go? Go over to Abby. How are the rooms? Dad, we're going to be late. We're going to be late. We're going to be late. Ah, yep, yep. You'll live. I'll check in. Dad. So they run to their rooms and they're scurrying around cleaning their rooms. Guess what started to happen at our house? 
They're doing their dish, they're rinsing their dishes, loading them in the dishwasher, they're cleaning their rooms. And I didn't have to yell, I didn't have to raise my voice, I didn't have to be grumpy. I just had to help them understand the requirements and then empower them to do it and feel the consequences if they didn't. Now, I wanna make a bigger application here because some of you are dealing with teenagers, some of you are dealing with young adults, some of you are dealing with grandkids. This little principle will work anywhere. This is how you call people higher into their destiny. This is Abby and I calling our kids into their destiny to become responsible people who can carry and steward their freedom and the presence and power of Jesus in their lives. You can do this with a kid who's smoking pot. You can do this with someone who's sleeping with their girlfriend or boyfriend. You can do this with, you name it, you can do this. But here's what you gotta do. You gotta find what they love. Your kids might not love school. They love something. They might love their cell phone. They might love that data package because they like to get on Facebook and they like to scroll Instagram and they like to do some Snapchat. Let's say you're having an issue with one of your kids or your grandkids. You go, hey, this is the requirement. If you can't do it, you're gonna lose your data package. No big deal. They roll their eyes at you because they don't think you're gonna follow through because maybe you haven't followed through in the past. So the next time they do that thing, make a note. Second time they do it, you make another note. Third time they do it, you make another note, and then you send them a text. (laughs) Hey, that thing that we talked about, you haven't done it these three times. Send. And then you get on the phone and you call the phone company. Hey, phone company, on this particular number on our family plan, would you deactivate the data package? Yeah. I still want the phone number to work. I want the data gone. Thanks. I'll call you back when we want to activate it. What happens when little so-and-so gets home? I can't get on Facebook. I can't get on Snapchat. I can't play my game. I can't. Did you have to yell? Did you have to raise your voice? But what you got to do is you do have to find what your kids love. They might love their car. They might love their weekends out. They might love spending the night out. And you've got to be willing to partner up with your spouse or if you're a grandparent raising grandkids. And you've got to be willing to lay out those little boundaries and then let them suffer the consequences if they don't listen to it. It's just a little principle that Abby and I are learning in our house. It's a little principle that will work almost everywhere, but it's powerful for calling people around us higher into their destiny. We can't control anyone. You know that? You don't have to. As parents and grandparents, we're called to empower our kids. That's good parenting. We don't want to be parents who are spanking our kids and yelling and raising our voice and ruling our house with an iron fist. We want to be parents and grandparents who are teaching our kids to steward their freedom. Calling them into that God-given destiny. The way you speak to your grandkids, your kids, your spouse, your siblings, excuse me, your friends, is either going to call them higher into their God-given destiny or it's going to sandbag them away from that destiny. I want every interaction that I have spilling the presence and the power of Jesus on everybody I talk to. That takes surrender. 
I'm not calling you to something that's hard today, church. I'm calling you to something that's impossible. It's a radical surrender. A radical surrender. Dean's going to play a little song for us, and here's a couple things I want you to think about. If you're taking notes, you can jot them down. Who has God called you to influence towards your God-given destiny, towards their God-given destiny, excuse me? Who has God called you to influence to their God-given destiny? Is there anyone today on whom your influence has been negative and you need to go ask their forgiveness? I'm a big fan of asking forgiveness. Big fan. I believe that it activates the finished work of the cross in our life. And the faster I can ask forgiveness, it gets Michael out of the way and it gets King Jesus right in the middle of the whole mess. Number one, who's God called you to influence? Number two, is there anyone you need to go and ask their forgiveness? And number three, do a radical self-evaluation this morning. Are you consistently influencing people towards heaven? With kindness, with love, with graciousness, with discipline, with encouraging words. Are we calling people towards their destiny in Jesus?